Improving Alpha, Innovation in Investing, ESG, and Technology with Michael Oliver Weinberg is being sponsored by Alternatives Watch and powered by Vidrio Financial. For a 360-degree view of investor mandate activity across alternative investments, turn to Alternatives Watch. Vidrio Financial is the first technology-enabled service for allocators looking to harness investment complexity and make better allocation decisions. Learn more at vidrio.com. That is V-I-D-R-I-O.com. Hi, this is Michael Oliver Weinberg. We'd like to welcome everyone to the Improving Alpha, Innovation in Investing, ESG, and Technology podcast series. Today, Scott Pittman, Chief Investment Officer of the Mount Sinai Medical Center, will join us. So listeners have a high-level sense of our roadmap for today. We will start with some background, then discuss investing, ESG, and technology. Investors and business leaders should be able to extract a great deal of value from Scott's insight. I can attest to that as Scott recently had uh, was kind enough to speak at our class at Columbia Business School, uh, and that was great. On that note, welcome, Scott. Thanks, Michael. Good to connect and appreciate you uh, having me join. Great. Um, let's start briefly with your career, uh, how it evolved to where you are today, and, and perhaps you could touch on where you are today and, and what you're doing there briefly. Sure. I guess the, uh, the high-level, very quick summary is I certainly uh, do love and have a passion for investing and also for science. So Mount Sinai has been a, a great combination of the two. Um, I guess the, you know, the details and, and how I got to where I am today, um, you know, really go back to early years where I did love both business and science. And so I was pre-med business um, in my uh, undergrad I actually went ahead and got my EMT certifications and spent uh, at least my junior and senior year, several of my weekends um, on ambulances, um, you know, trying to get a feel for a little bit more of the hands-on what, uh, what the healthcare um, you know, might feel and look like from that end. I, I did love the business side, though, and actually had some mentors on the healthcare end. And you know, long story short, I ended up on the business side of healthcare and spent about five years and found myself, frankly, um, you know, looking for something a little bit different. And so I had gone back to my MBA, which is not uncommon, obviously, for more some transition aspects. And as I did that, and I spent more time in some of the research and the finance and investment classes, I realized that was really a direction that I had a passion for and wanted to pursue, um, which kind of led to the next stage, which was uh, kind of the chairs for the economics and finance department asked if I'd be interested in helping with some research and staying on to teach uh, full-time. So uh, that led me into teaching corporate finance and um, some sections of micro and macroeconomics, which I did for two years at Baylor. Um, and around the time that I was actually looking to move from teaching uh, and actually uh, potentially go and join a hedge fund, uh, it was serendipitous because Baylor uh, had just brought their assets back in-house and Jonathan Hook had joined as the CIO to manage that um, investment office. And John and I were talking and he was looking to build out the office and the portfolio. And it was just a fantastic time. And so I, I decided to, to go down that path and very thankful for it. And obviously very thankful to, to John and kind of that first initial step into an endowment role. Um, and John and I worked alongside and building out Baylor's endowment office and bringing in additional staff and taking the assets and getting those invested. Um, and 
ultimately that led to me moving to Mount Sinai right at the end of 2008, which certainly 2008 was an interesting time period for financial markets. Um, but it just coincided with uh, Mount Sinai looking to bring in a CIO and build out their investment office. Um, and so that opportunity presented itself. And so I've been here now, not quite 15 years, but coming up on uh, 15 years at the end of this year. So it's been, um, it's been a wonderful, uh, fast experience and uh, thankful to be working in a healthcare environment that kind of brings back that love of science uh, with investing. Yeah, and it's a, it's obviously a, a, a great institution that you're with. Um, that said, maybe you could share a little bit about the endowment, uh, targets, um, assets under management, who you're investing on behalf, though. I, obviously, I have a sense of that. Uh, absolutely. And it's an excellent question because I think you know, individuals understand you know what a foundation looks like and does and what a university endowment looks like and how, you know, how they're structured. Um, family offices, pensions, uh, but hospital systems are this complex, you know, system that does have a little bit of everything. And, and some healthcare systems may have one or two. Um, a healthcare system like Mount Sinai has a little bit, honestly, of kind of all the little areas, and I'll, I'll highlight those. But um, going back to when I joined and building out the investment office. The focal point in the initial hiring to build out that office was to manage the long-term pool um, or endowment. And those words really are you know, interchangeable. Um, a little bit of a difference in what the long-term pool versus endowment for a university might be like. Uh, we have more unrestricted capital as part of our endowment as opposed to a university endowment, although university endowments do have unrestricted capital. We just have more of that. Uh, but we do have restricted endowed funds. We have medical students that, um, just like university has students, we have uh, department chairs of uh, various areas like cardiology, where endowed funds help support um, those chairs. And just like a you know, university has their endowment support operations, um, our endowment helps to support operations from Mount Sinai. Uh, you know, we have a spending rate placed against our endowment in the same way, where the complexity of healthcare really starts to expand. Um, over the years, as the investment office has you know, supported the investment and outcomes for the endowment in its long-term pool, um, there have been other areas that we help to help manage or advise on, and kind of those roles of advisement have been you know, uh, you know, sometimes more um, or less in terms of our touch points. And so you, know, you have a short-term um, capital that technically is operating funds, but you know, isn't necessarily to be used in the immediate term. And so our office helps support some of those operating funds. Um, they're mostly from a retirement standpoint are DC assets, uh, but we help um, in the advisement of the DC plan. Um, there are some DB assets as there have been some mergers and acquisitions over time. Um, we help kind of support again, there as a sounding board to the DB assets. And then there are insurance, both um, health insurance and reinsurance for the medical malpractice where there are equity ties to various entities. Uh, and I sit as the investment committee chair um, for those entities to help in the overseeing of the assets and again, supporting outcomes. And then a lot of healthcare entities have some form of strategic balance sheet investment that may take place. Um, for medical centers that have a school, uh, there's probably more of that from the, uh, the innovation side and the commercialization and the licensing that can take place. 
But even for healthcare systems that don't have a medical school, there may be strategic alignment or strategic benefits that come about that drive more of the balance sheet investments. And so I support a committee within Mount Sinai comprised of other individuals, but that committee also does get involved in some of the um, organization's balance sheet strategic investments and uh, ultimate monetization. So a lot of, a lot of areas within healthcare. Um, while the investment office has a prime objective, uh, we do help support a lot of other of these pools that certainly are still very important for various reasons. Wow. Yeah, it's quite, it's, it's quite broad and complex, but um, super interesting. And, and let's get to the crux of this episode. Um, I've probably waited too long to get, to, to get us here. How, and let's talk about innovation. And, and that's what this podcast really tries to get at. How are you innovating to improve alpha from, for starters, an investment perspective? Sure. Um, yes. It's, it's an excellent question. Uh, and certainly an, an area to focus in. I, 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 like to say for Mount Sinai, um, you know, one of the areas that we've been able to do this and to get to the heart of it and then to provide a little context around it is we've tried to lean into um, our best ideas. Uh, our best ideas might be uh, specific investment opportunities. Those best ideas might be longer term themes. Um, but to lean in ultimately means to build greater conviction and greater concentration um, into those opportunities. So I think one of the ways that we've tried to, and at least have successfully thus far, been able to achieve good outcomes has been by, you know, having concentration and conviction in our best ideas. Um, if you kind of step out and look a little bit more broadly at that, um, you know, really investors have a few levers they can use to drive returns. Um, certainly controlling risk is an is a equal and important conversation. But in driving the returns and hopefully driving value add in the sense of innovating alpha, I mean, you can certainly use direct, directional risk taking and you know, whether you want to use the term beta or not certainly kind of aligns with that. But that directional risk taking can be through public markets. It can be through private markets. Um, it can be through non-equity markets and credit. Uh, but ultimately, you are using research and you're using fundamental analysis or quantitative analysis to drive a certain measure of risk-taking that more of a beta orientational directional risk. Leverage is another one, certainly another lever that gets used. Relative value, gross exposure, long, short, real estate using debt, um, certainly private equity strategies, not all of them are, you know, have and will use debt to help drive returns. And so I think that when you look at institutional investors, um, you know, the areas of directional risk-taking and the use of leverage have been fairly well accounted for and are still important to use. I'm not saying, you know, investors shouldn't be taking beta and investors shouldn't at the right points in time can't use leverage effectively. Um, but those are areas that are pretty well understood and pretty well utilized. I think the area that's less utilized, uh, and doesn't mean it's appropriate in every case, but is this area of concentration of best ideas where you can be diversified but you don't necessarily have to be in everything. In certain markets or certain strategies, there may be reason to have greater concentration in those markets or those strategies. And it may mean that public markets make sense in some markets and private markets make sense in other markets. But understanding how you want to really drive your implementation and concentrating that implementation while still maintaining appropriate diversification. Because the real takeaway, I think, in all this is most portfolios have so many underlying positions 
that when you look at the portfolio level, you're really recreating, you know, betas and you know, market-like exposures. And for most, most part, you know, active managers are being used and you're paying fees for the active management. And so you're not getting that benefit at the portfolio level uh, by having so many positions that get accumulated within the portfolio. Plus, if, if you're paying managers, obviously, you have the added burden of, of bearing the netting risk, right? Absolutely. And um, so we've, you know, it, it, it is, if you take it to one extreme, I don't think an institutional investor would have all of their assets in a single manager and single strategy. Um, that would be seen as not being prudent and wouldn't necessarily be, I think, a fiduciary responsibility. But on the other side, if you look at industry data, it points to endowments and foundations having, on average, about 100 to 110 manager relationships. And that range is around 40 to 200. And, you know, those managers themselves are reasonably diversified. Some are very diversified. And so if you look at a typical portfolio with 100 manager relationships, and you look at those managers and their underlying positions, and you roll that up to a portfolio level, that's a lot of market exposure with active fees. And so we've We've just tried to pull back on that to say, yes, diversification is a key principle investing. You definitely want to be diversified. But at the same token, you know, we even going back to academics know that with you know, 20 stocks, and it has to be the right 20 stocks, but you can diversify you know, the S&P 500 through 20 stocks. And so you don't get a lot of additional benefit and you, know, you don't get the benefit potentially um, of your active tracking error by then putting in too many in one area other positions. So we, we, we just try to balance between these, these measures of diversification and still maintaining conviction. Yeah. Well, I think you've hit on a really good point because I do think, um, uh, you know, having been an allocator for the past 20 years and, and, and knowing so many like yourself. Um, yeah. I think that over diversification is is definitely not is is definitely suboptimal and um to your point yeah if you i mean at the if you have 200 managers and you have um you know each manager has 50 to 100 positions or you know again depends on the strategy and the fund and the etc but um yeah that that ends up there there are probably uh, massive massive diminishing returns the netting risk and then the to your point the dilution of any alpha that they or you may be adding through the allocation process but taking that very high level um conceptual framework that you apply to um a more practical level um or maybe are you comfortable could you maybe share um it doesn't have to be managers per se or investment spe in specific investments, but like where you're leaning into, as you alluded to, or trying to add alpha or where you see directional opportunities. Sure. And I'll, I'll give some examples. And then um, as you were talking to, I was reminded of something that really is less um, portfolio investment related in terms of improving alpha. And I think points more to um, aspects of governance. Uh, and team culture that support, I think, the process of driving alpha. And I'll come back to that in a second. I just mentioned that now because I, I don't want to uh, forget myself. But in, ter in terms of sure. um, getting to uh, you know, historical examples in our portfolio and even current examples, you know, a really quick and easy historical example is coming out of the financial crisis. And you know, I kind of mentioned I got here at the end of 2008. Um, you know, looking back, we could have all just invested in risk and got home. 
but at that point in time, there still was a lot more uncertainty and um, credit in particular was offering highly attractive um, returns. And while you didn't necessarily know where equities might go and the recovery and certainly the financial system in itself, uh, there's a little bit more in terms of capital preservation within um, the credit strategies. So we did lean in um, and built out a fairly sizable position within credit. And as we did that, um, we got to understand the structured credit space uh, even more so. And so as we leaned into credit, we leaned into structured credit. And as we built exposure into structured credit, we got to better understand TREP CDOs and found the TREP CDO space itself to be really well diversified and to be misunderstood and found that this group of securities um, was quite attractive. And so we concentrated within TREP CDOs within a concentration to structured credit within an expanded allocation to credit. Um, you know, so that, that being kind of one example of kind of working into then at that point in time, a dislocation. There have been times in the past where we're not doing anything today um, around music royalties, but back in 2014, 2015, and 2016, we did find the space to be really attractive from a valuation standpoint in return and didn't find it to be very institutionalized. And actually, there was an aspect of the market that was highly fragmented um, and a lot of trends, especially with the streaming trends that we're well aware of today, um, that were also driving the potential you know, increased return outcomes. And so that was a new opportunity um, where we built some concentration into at that point in time. That was an area that we felt was, you know, again, appropriate for an institutional investor, but not necessarily institutional in itself. If you look at today, just I don't know that there are anything um, from a, an investor standpoint that's completely obvious. But I do think that there are markets that lend themselves and some still longer term themes um, that are interesting. Um, so, you know, if you look at public equity markets, not every public equity market is necessarily you know, the most favorable market. Some markets capture better um, earnings and economic returns in other markets. Um, so, you know, we're invested in Europe, but we're not invested in Europe. We're invested in Northern Europe. Uh, we're invested in Japan, but we're invested more in small and mid-cap Japan through uh, an activist-oriented strategy. Uh, we're invested in Southeast Asia, but we're, at least um, our decisions thus far has been less to go towards the public markets in Southeast Asia, but we really like the private market opportunity in Southeast Asia. And so in certain markets, we've leaned to parts of those markets, whether that be more of a geography base, such as Europe, or more of a cat base, such as Japan. Um, in other markets like that, Southeast Asia, we've leaned to be more private versus public. And then some markets certainly have depth and maturity in both the public and the private side. And so we have exposure there, certainly the United States being the case there. But even within the U.S., we do believe there are certain sectors that have really supportive long-term trends like biotech and not because it's Mount Sinai and not because, you know, we're investing in biotech because we're in healthcare. Um, it's really, a, I, I think, a team-owned um, long-term uh, you know, belief in where value can be created, the specialization that goes into understanding biotech the areas of innovation and technology that also influence biotech. And then frankly, the valuations there um, are still very attractive today. And it's something where if you have a long-term horizon, a lot of the tourist capital that came in 
um, has really left. And so you have a core of very uh, committed um, investors that are there in the biotech space with the capability of specialization. And yes, there's volatility there, but there's a lot of value add too. So those are some examples in terms of historical um, kind of intermediate time periods and then also more present how you know, we're thinking about some things. Yeah, and I like the way you look at markets in terms of um you know, should you be in public versus private? Uh, should you know, should you be in large cap Japanese exporters or smid cap? Um, and then should you be passive or active? And you're, you've chosen constructivism. It sounds like I can probably guess, but one of the, one of the managers. But anyway, um, moving. You, you touched upon technology um, and biotech, but um, moving away from biotech. Any ways you're using technology to innovate and improve alpha from an investment management perspective? Yeah, so when you ask that question, I think of uh, two things. The, the first one, I would say, um, you know, there's nothing too novel for what we're doing versus what I think other investors are already doing. And that's more, I think, the internal use of technology. And when we have um, risk management exposure, um, you know, database, uh, CRM, like we have all this software and technology support internally there. Um, you know, we're not using uh, some program that I think is, you know, is providing kind of outsized um, benefits at this point in time relative to other investors you know, outside of the internal use of technology, which is very important, not to make um, also light of it, because I think all those resources um, provide tremendous support and help us in what we're doing. Um, but the investing opportunity set itself um, you know, has been something that we have pushed into and continue to find attractive, um, you know, if, I read um, maybe about a year ago, I had read it a long time ago and someone brought it up in a manager meeting. I was like, I'm going to go back and look at that because, you know, a lot of times books that were written, especially a book written about technology in the late nineties, not so relevant, uh, but it was, it was a book called technological revolutions and financial capital by Carlota Perez. And it's like, you read that book that was written in the late nineties. Um, it sounds like you're reading a book that was written last year and it still really holds up. And so, uh, I, I do believe, and the reason I bring that book up in the, in the aspect of technological revolutions, I do believe that you know, we've had this revolution, which has already occurred, and now we have these cycles that build on that. And you know, as you build cycle on cycle, you get to this term super cycle, and you have this larger trending opportunity set. Now, doesn't necessarily mean that you just invest in valuations matter, and you know, certainly the hype of what can be versus what is today, all those things and lessons learned and issues you come across, but certainly the internet bubble of, you know, what was, you know, well, you know, 20 plus years ago, I mean, we've seen the fruits of that. It just didn't happen then. But I do think that the duration and the time periods of where we see these, you know, waves and these cycles, I mean, that is being compressed. And so, um, you know, it, you know, the hype of blockchain and digital assets, which, you know, maybe people are completely disregarding today. I don't think it's gone away. Now, I, I think there's a core there that still is interesting. And I think we'll see some things that we'll look back and say that's quite innovative over time. You know, the hype of AI, which is today, um, I, I think a lot of the incumbents um, are the early winners there. And that's not to say that new companies and, and kind of the froth of capital into new deals, um, you know, some of that may not prove out, but the valuations are quite high. Um, and it may be a little bit more before we see where some of the applications really have um, evaluation effect. 
So I, I think that um, you know, just naturally, we, we tend to extrapolate sometimes faster than we should. Um, but we do have dedicated investments targeting technology opportunities, whether that be through biotech and healthcare, or whether that be more through the application of data um, and enterprise and you know, focused in on early stage and seed investing um, and having some of that early stage and seed investing, not just U.S., but global. Because um, again, getting back to some of these markets like Latin America and Southeast Asia, if you look at internet penetration, smart device adoption, and you look at the technology-enabled businesses, you're not trying to necessarily just build some global powerhouse that's going to compete against a U.S. company. You have local businesses that can create new entrants and capture other customers that you know those customers did not exist. You don't have to cannibalize, and so there's ways to create efficiency to capture new customers and, and grow earnings uh, that are available in some of these markets where uh, it is interesting. And so, you know, we are very much, I think, um, you know, finding that this technological revolution that happened some time ago, that these compounding cycles are providing opportunity while not trying to just necessarily, you know, bet the farm on that, but being careful about vintage year diversification and the timing of how we do it and paying attention to valuations along the way. That's that's yeah. Look, I um I I couldn't agree more with um m much of what you said in terms of technological adoption cycles um increasing rapidly um uh then in terms of the what what, what you know maybe you weren't quite as blunt but uh, excessive or immense hype of AI now <laughs> right <laughs> right excessive is a good word I'll go with that too. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and um, I mean, AI has been around for 70 years. There have been what have been called, as you probably know, nuclear winters where it's overhyped and then it disappoints. And, um, you know, but anyway, we could spend hours talking about AI and, and technology. Um, but let's let's hit on the third pillar of this podcast, which is ESG. Um, uh, why don't we, I'll, I'll leave it. I'll throw I'll leave it an open ended question for you. Thoughts? <laughs> sure. <laughs> So, and I'll try to make a few comments here. And if there's something I'm commenting on that you would like to, um, you know, drill down on, let me know. Um, I mean, the the very first thing that I think our investment office is highly aware of is um, we are working with a uh, highly motivated, mission-minded organization where you know ESG uh, in its truest form is being carried out, and it's you know important from the senior ranks um, to the community. So. Um, you know, we want to ensure that what we're doing within the investment office, um, you know, from not just uh, prudence and as a fiduciary of this capital, uh, but also just an alignment of values and principles is supporting this mission for Mount Sinai. Um, you know, we have over 40,000 employees. There's important critical research going on. You know, Sinai is certainly a medical leader and it's also a community hospital. And so, um, you know, Ensuring how the investments are supporting that uh, and that alignment uh, is very much ESG related. When it gets to then um, the investment office and our engagement with managers and, and, and that process, we have and continue to individually engage with all of our managers on this conversation. Um, we've been involved in helping um, one manager in particular really develop and build out um, their practice and policies here. Um, but our, our focus with our managers on ESG is really twofold. And not that all investors don't do this, but one, um, certainly how are they 
integrating or focusing on these measures within their investment process and you know if they are if they aren't you know why aren't they and how are they thinking about these factors if they are you know sometimes it's one or two maybe not all three and you know how is it that they've been successful and how do they approach the factors in their filtering and in their engagement um, with companies uh, and then the other piece, which which is the internal, um, you know, because it's one thing. You know, allocators are good at this too. Allocators are always good at kind of pointing a finger and asking a question at managers, but never ask the question and point back at them. So I think you know the internal conversation around how the manager reflects culturally these values and how ESG is reflected within their own firm. Um, those those factors are are quite important too. Um, and in fact, I think you know the the biggest issues. Um, that we have when we go through diligence with managers um, is addressing what we may perceive as misalignment. Um, and that misalignment may be misalignment between the GPLP. It may be misalignment between partners and employees internally at the firm. Um, and sometimes that misalignment, or, or maybe not sometimes, all the time, but you know, you know, that, that misalignment is very much directly tied to ESG-related issues. Um, you know, so these things are you know very important in terms of the sustainability of the strategy, of the outcomes of that strategy, of the team and the culture and the ability to be able to continue to drive those outcomes. Um, and then I'd say kind of that next layer, and then I'll pause um, um, on any follow-up comments. There are, I think, some interesting opportunities within just the realm of ESG. And certainly the term, you know, energy transition is, you know, all these terms and investments are loaded and have a lot of connotations. <laughs> I think yeah. there's some interesting opportunities around energy transition. And so that is a research project of the investment team um, that we continue to spend time on to better understand the implications, the winners, areas that are influenced by the energy transition that may be beneficiaries um, as we continue to think about forward opportunities. Yeah, well, I couldn't agree more. I think the energy transition will create immense alpha opportunities, frankly, on both the long and the short side. Um, are any preliminary findings on that before we move to the next topic? Um, nothing that I'll, I'll verbally comment on yet, just because okay. I, okay. I still, I That's still, fine. I still feel like I'm in a learning process, and so you know, don't feel like there's any definitive. Uh, well, I, I do believe there are investments being made today and opportunities that we will likely make at some point in the future. Got it. Okay, fair enough. Um, and then what, what? moving away from the, the three sort of pillars, um, investing, ESG, and technology, um, what's the biggest challenge you face in achieving the, the goals of the, um, of the fund or, or the, the, the various entities? Yeah, I mean, there's there's the general challenge of um, the multiple things in the air all at once sometimes where um, you have market events that can drive a need to focus, um, but that focus is on you know, many different pools of capital, whether we're directly managing or, or advising on them. Um, and then also, you know, uh, healthcare systems are complex entities, so it doesn't have to be some macroeconomic event. There can be things across the system that's more specific to you know, the community or New York or things taking place from a competitive aspect that you know cause the need to be able to focus time and energy. So I think the um, 
efficiency and effectiveness of time, which everyone faces, but you know, with a large integrated healthcare system, you have to do that and do it very well. And you have to be able to kind of switch hats because not every pool has the same objective. And at the same time, you know, maintain the focus on the primary pool because um, everyone's very much understanding kind of what that pool is trying to achieve. So I think the, the toggling and the ability to kind of, uh, you know, address different needs and potentially not always at different times, but could be at the same time, you know, that, that presents challenges. Um, I think from a just general investment standpoint, I mean, I think we all know this, but you just can't force returns. And so, you know, being aware of what is the institution's risk tolerance and while being aware of that risk tolerance, certainly aware of market opportunities and just being cognizant and careful to not force um, whether it's, you know, the, the comment and the credit of reaching for yield, but in general, just being careful not to force the return. Um, even though longer term, we've been able to drive those returns at any point in time, um, have to be careful about how that looks within the risk environment. And then, you know, the managing of expectations. I mean, I think we all feel that the current environment we're in is the hardest one. And looking back at 2008, it seems like it's easy. And back in 2008, it wasn't easy at all. But I, I, I do think we have to recognize that it's been rather historical um, what has happened in a recent time period between the global pandemic and a very inflationary period within the U.S., the very rapid response by the Fed, um, and you know, not many investors have invested in an inflationary time period. And just kind of a comment historically on that, you know, if you look across developed markets over longer time period, um, in the U.S. having you know, multiple kind of examples within this, but other countries too, it is more uncommon for there to be a single wave of inflation and then it to be done. Uh, it is much more common, if you put a statistic to it, it's more like 85 to 90% for there to be multiple ways of inflation. And so I, I do think we have to be aware of the fact that while the Fed is certainly paying attention to inflation, um, we may not have quite seen um, the end. There could be multiple ways. We could be in an environment where rates stay higher for longer. Uh, and then also there's structurally, you know, I think, reasons why inflation may be higher um, you know, going back to aspects of ESG and climate and the impact on agriculture and insurance industry and supply chains redundancy just with other, um, you know, disruptions and then also with the onshoring or nearshoring, all those things, I think, create structurally higher inflation. And so a higher rate environment is one that investors are less comfortable or at least have less experience within. And so I think just being humble about that opportunity set and careful um, not to move and to reach into risk um, at the wrong times is important. Yeah, uh, fair enough. Uh, you know, one question I have for you that you, you didn't allude to, but in my mind, there was sort of a, a corollary. Um, you obviously, you have a, a board as as many or most institutions do. Um, and, and I've had the privilege to in, in, in be invested with some of them and they're, they're super uh, interesting, smart, thoughtful, brilliant people. What What's the dynamic like in terms of, the investment office and the board. Just just curious on a little bit of color on that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one one of the reasons I was attracted for the the Mount Sinai opportunity was was the committee and the board. Um, I figured, uh, you know, it, worst case scenario, um, I, I might survive for a short period of time and hopefully become a smarter investor in the process um, because they are a very wise group of individuals um, that provide a lot of perspective. Um, and I think within that, you know, 
there is some important takeaways. One, you know, they're busy in their day jobs and they're, they're not in the weeds and the details in the investment office. Um, but they are a partner in this and they are truly a fiduciary alongside us. And so for us to be able, I think, to be effective, um, we certainly have to, you know, be engaging with them so they understand how we're thinking about the world, how we're thinking about the implementation of that. And they can provide thoughts and feedback. And so using them in a partnership approach, which is the right approach, you know, in my mind for any committee, but particularly with this committee, um, is, is quite important. And even the structure for how we have set up, I mean, everyone ultimately has to be evaluated on whether they've done a good job or not. Um, and even that structure for how we have things set up with the investment committee from a governance perspective, I think is quite unique. Um, and we take into consideration qualitative elements that deal with setting goals and priorities and meeting those or not meeting those. Um, the quality of our research and the quality of our communication. So there's a framework built around the qualitative and then the quantitative components as well, because returns matter. Um, returns matter also over multi-year periods. And so how do you think about um, you know, the qualitative aspects of the process, the communication, the risk taken, and the other aspects of the return outcomes and in thinking about those in ways where you're not trying to be, you know, too cute, but balance those outcomes in a good, healthy process in a government's process. And so we have a review process that incorporates these factors as a framework. And then we sit down with our committee for really a formal just walking through this at the end of the year. And we take their questions and we talk about the year. We address anything that's from a qualitative or quantitative component. Um, and ultimately, they have discretionary determination around how they you know, view these outcomes, which if you're in partnership with your committee, um, you know, there's trust that's in place. And you, know, you have to have a committee that understands it is, you know, what it is you've done, but it's also on us to make sure that we've communicated what it is we're doing. And so I think the governance um, process between the investment office, Mount Sinai, and the board is, is well constructed, so there's balance. Um, and then the team itself, too, fits within this kind of balanced structure where we've tried to, uh, and I kind of alluded to earlier, and a little bit of the kind of improving alpha and more of the process component, we've tried to gain a bit of the benefit of both the specialist model and the generalist model, because uh, there's pros and cons with both. Now, you know, the outcome of that could be you end up in no man's land where you don't get any benefit, but we've tried to take the best parts of that. And so we get the best benefits of the specialization and the best benefits of the generalist model. And so to provide a very quick summary there, individuals on the team have dedicated coverage. There are areas where they have specialization. Every year, there's some aspect that's being rotated across the team. So there's fresh perspective. And every individual has an opportunity cost mindset where they're looking at across a layer of the portfolio instead of a vertical. And so they have benefits of specialization alongside the benefits of the generalist of the opportunity costs and trade-offs within this fresh rotation that keeps, I think, a new perspective put to the portfolio. And then added to that is just then the culture, which provides a lot of runway, a lot of responsibility, so that team members can you know, really take on as much as they'd like within the portfolio. What advice do you have for other allocators and investors? Yeah, it, it, I think the <laughs> I'm always looking for advice. <laughs> I, I hesitate to like give advice because I think more the, more the listening and, and hearing advice is, 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 is better. But I, I think the um, advice, if like you're forced to say what advice you give, I think it's just, you know, 
allocators, it's easy for the fiduciary to force allocators to be focused on things that aren't necessarily the right fit for their institution. Um, and, and how you just continue to create alignment with your investment committee, how you continue to ensure that it's your institutional needs that are being met, how you figure out how there might be skill sets or advantages for your organization or your committee members or your own um, experiences and how you can use those effectively. Because it can get dangerous and I think ineffective when you know, we, we fall into the, um, you know, trying to comment, uh, you know, copy or mimic um, or fiduciaries are essentially just saying only invest in this or, you know, why didn't you beat them? Um, those things, you know, there's, there's echoes of those things that are important, not to disregard those. Uh, but the, the need to ensure that the fiduciary, the institution um, is being matched in that. I mean, that's ultimately, we all know that as allocators, but you know, it's just kind of how, how, what are you doing actively to ensure that? Because uh, there's passive, you know about it, and you may not be doing anything to actively you know, move that forward. And then other ways that I think can be you know, important and steps that can be taken. We, we've, we've, our discussion has been comp pretty comprehensive, but that said, um, anything we didn't discuss that I, I should have asked you or you're, you're discussing with other investors that's sort of highly topical or interesting in investors or uh, allocators from, a, you know, could be from an in innovation, investment, ESG, technology, or, or even more broad or in other investment perspective? No, it's nothing we've covered a lot of ground. Um, I, mean, I think we all um, enjoy this uh, this space just because we get to have the engagement with you know other smart individuals. We get to learn, we get to teach, we get to challenge our biases. Scott, we would like to thank you for that interesting discussion and sharing your most valuable asset with us. Your time. We hope listeners have a better appreciation for what one of our more thoughtful endowment leaders is thinking about and how they may benefit from this. This is your host, Michael Oliver Weinberg, hoping you join us again for our next episode where we speak with another thought leader who will provide insight into improving alpha via innovation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Improving Alpha Innovation in Investing ESG and Technology, sponsored by Alternatives Watch and powered by Vidrio Financial. With Vidrio Financial Asset Managers, endowments and foundations, pensions, family offices, insurance plans, OCIOs and sovereign wealth funds can cut through the complexity of asset allocation to reduce costs, mitigate portfolio risk, optimize compliance controls, and improve performance analytics. Interested to learn more? Contact us today at vidrio.com. That's V-I-D-R-I-O.com. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Vidrio Financial or our host, Michael Oliver Weinberg. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding investment planning.